This is a Particle Podcast. WA Science, told different. Powered by SciTech. Please Look Up is recorded at SciTech on Wajak Noongar land. Good evening everybody and welcome to Please Look Up, the monthly podcast produced by Particle, where we take you through a guided tour of the night sky as seen from Perth, as well as taking a deep dive into some of the more out-of-this-world space news. In this episode, we'll be discussing what you can see in the night sky in the month of October. My name is Leon, and I'm joined by Beth, a professional presenter from the SciTech Planetarium. Beth, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Leon. So, Beth, as we always start these podcasts, can you tell me, as a casual observer, what sort of planets will I be able to see in the sky this month? So, there's a few. Um, Our M planets are frustratingly uh, away. Um, Mars and Mercury, they're hiding behind the sun uh, at this time of year, so we won't be able to see them. M planets? What's that? I was wondering what you meant by M planets. The ones that start with M. Of course. Um, So they're behind the sun, you can't see those. Yeah, you can't see those, but you can see Saturn, Jupiter and Venus. Uh, So Saturn's really good from after sunset uh, in the northeast until about two in the morning. Jupiter, you have to stay up a little bit later to catch that one coming up. Uh, but Venus, you either have to be a very late uh, sleeper or a very early riser because Venus is best seen just before the sunrise. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Yep, you're, you're either up very late or up very early. Yep. Um, well, I'm more of a late person, so I'm guessing I'll probably be able to see Saturn and Jupiter up in the evening. Yes. Um, I'm not a morning person, so I might give Venus a miss, but before sunrise, you said. Yes. If you're keen to see Venus. Yeah, that's a good one. So if anyone's up super early, uh, then if you see a very, very bright star in the sky, it might not be a star at all. It might be <laughs> Venus. It's probably Venus. Okay, good to know. Um, what other interesting news? What's happening in October? So one of the most interesting space events in October are the Orionid meteor shower. Um, that, Orionid meteor shower? Yeah, so that is uh, what I guess we would call shooting stars as well, uh, but a lot of them oh, yes, um, of all... Uh, peaking so the you'll be able to see the highest volume of them in the sky on about the 21st of october um so you'll be able to see them from i think now um when this podcast goes out all right Uh, oh so it's like it's going for ages but the best day is like yes 21st ish yeah exactly so you'll be able to see some activity Mm -hmm. uh throughout the whole of october but it'll be getting towards its best on the 21st. On the 21st, right. And so you said they are the Orionids. Is that because they're associated with the Orion constellation? Well, so it looks like they come from the Orion constellation, but it's not like those fragments are actually coming from the stars in Orion. Right. They actually come from Halley's Comet. Halley's Comet? Yes. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so it's just the angle that we're viewing them at. It looks like they come from Orion. Yes. But you know, Orion's not even a real thing. It's just a direction. Yes, exactly. Yes. So with uh, most meteor showers, they are named after the constellation where it looks like they're coming from right. uh, because that's the easiest way to find them in the night sky. Because if you're looking up at the night sky and I say, oh, just look for Halley's Comet, but if you, we can't see the comet in the night sky, that's not going to be much help if you actually just want to see the meteors. Whereas yeah, right. it's a little easier to find Orion with his belt. Uh, so the Orionids. There you go. So my understanding, so meteors are like bits of dust and sand as they streak across the sky. Yes, so absolutely. fell off Halley's Comet potentially centuries ago and yes. now they're, they're uh, arriving at Earth. Yes. So the reason that they look like they're making light is because they're actually tiny fragments of dust and rock that are burning up in our atmosphere. 
Okay, so yeah, as they streak across the atmosphere, they glow. Cool. Yeah. How many meteors should I expect to see then on on this sort of peak day? So about a dozen per hour. So it's not going to be like all of the stars in the sky are moving. <laughs> it's not going to look like that, but it will be, yeah, hopefully about 12 uh, in an hour, which yeah. is pretty good for That's a meteor good. shower. Yeah, what's that, once every five minutes or so? Yeah. All right. Um, when's the best time to look then? So this is another one for our night owls out there. Huh. Um, after midnight, but before sunrise. Uh, yeah. All right, my time to shine. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, okay, oh, is that just because of the position of Orion in the sky? Yes, it's partly because of that positioning and also um, obviously it's a little bit easier to see all of the stars when you don't have uh, things like the moon in the way. Uh, so uh, making sure that you catch your timing right is important for general light. Um, and the same thing as well, if you're in a city, there'll be lots of light pollution. So mm. if you can try and get out of Perth on the 21st uh, or out of whichever city you might be in. Good stargazing uh, always begins with get out of the city. Absolutely, <laughs> including for meteors. Fantastic. All right, so meteor shower, lots to look forward to there. Anything else in the month of October? Yes, super exciting solar eclipse. Excellent. But we can't see it from Australia. <laughs> Damn. Yes. I had a feeling we would know if we could see it from Australia. We would. So it is a solar eclipse um, on the 14th of October, uh, and that is passing through the Americas. So it's looping all the way down through North America, and it's even catching a little bit of South America as well. Ah, there you go. And so solar eclipse is when, obviously, when the moon passes in front of the sun and the shadow is cast on the Earth. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Um, but yeah, no, not for us. Um, although I do seem to recall, um, because of the way the moon's orbit works... Usually when there's a solar eclipse, then a couple of weeks later, there's a lunar eclipse as well. Are we going to get one? Yes, we will. Um, so it is, it's not an amazing lunar eclipse. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's only about 6% of the moon that's uh, going to be in shadow. Oh, no. <laughs> so it might just look like a slightly small moon. Uh, oh. But uh, we can see it again from 2 till 5 a.m. on the 29th. <laughs> so a slightly, slightly disappointing lunar eclipse for us uh, compared to the uh, solar eclipse in America on the 14th. But, 14th. Um, I mean, we had our, our big X-mouth eclipse, so yeah, it's their did. turn, We've, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, so you need to be really determined if you want to stay up till 3 in the morning to see 6% of the moon be covered by shadow. Yeah. Um, all right, but, well, if you, if you want to, you certainly can. Absolutely. All right, Um well, what about any interesting constellations? What's uh, what's exciting this month? So the Great Square of Pegasus uh, is visible in the northern night sky. Um, so And the rest of Pegasus as well. It's just the square is sort of the easiest bit to spot. Right. What's quite fun about that is that one of the stars of the square isn't actually part of Pegasus. Uh, it's part of Andromeda, um, which is the neighbour constellation. Um, oh, okay. So yeah. let me get this right. So Pegasus is the constellation. The constellation is Pegasus, yes. Right. And But because of just the stars in it, is there, so we're looking for a pattern of stars that looks like a square, is that right? Yes, it looks like a giant square. Uh, and then coming off that square, there sort of looks like um, if you draw a very poor dot to dot and use a lot of imagination, uh, there is a... Uh, horse's head and a couple of front legs coming off one side of the square. Right, okay. Oh, and the, the square is like the body of this Pegasus. Yeah, sort of like the chest of it. Right, which I remember Pegasus is the, the horse with wings, isn't it? Yes, so Pegasus is the winged horse. Wings, not in the constellation. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it could just be a horse, but the Greeks were lovely and creative. Um, and a lot of the constellations in that area are all to do with the same uh, Greek myth, the same story. Um, so Pegasus uh, was was first written by Perseus, uh, who uh, 
was the one who was famous for slaying the Gorgon Medusa. In mm-hmm. fact, that's how Pegasus came to being in the mythology, uh, sprung forth from the Gorgon's neck, which is, oh, oh wow. I know, yeah, those, <laughs> hey, those Greeks. I didn't know that part, because like, I remember yeah. the Medusa is the one with snakes for hair. Yes, yes, so when she got her head cut off, a horse appeared. <laughs> Because mythology, um, <laughs> and then Pegasus and uh, Perseus together uh, helped rescue Andromeda, who is another constellation right, from next Cetus, ah. another constellation. Wow! So the whole story is up there. It's a story. F- I think a story for another day. But and and so you said one of the stars in the square of Pegasus is actually part of the Andromeda constellation. Yes, it is. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we use it to make the horse anyway. Yes, we use it to make the nice big square because it's a big obvious square. Yep. Very good. Um, I did see because the name's ringing a bell now um is it is it 51 pegasi that's the the really interesting one or 51 pegasi b or something like that 51 pegasi b or peg pegasi pegasi i I don't know i don't don't know i'm not greek um so 51 horse star um well no it's not actually a star it 51 pegasi or pegasi b was the first exoplanet we ever found around a sun-like star Right. Well, yeah, okay, so that's why it's ringing a bell. Yes. Um, so the star is 51 Pegasi and then the planet is called 51 Pegasi B. Yes. Um, right, and it's the first planet found around, a sun-like star, did you say? Yes, so an exoplanet is just a planet that's been found outside our star. Like, yeah. it, it's not orbiting our star, it's orbiting a different one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it was the first one we found orbiting one that's like our sun. Um, wow, how did they even find a planet like this? So... They found it using what's called the Doppler method. Um, the Doppler method's a little bit weird. So when you have a planet and a star, um, the centre of gravity between the two of them, um, because they're both pulling each other with gravity, because everything has gravity, but obviously the lesser weight is not going to be, or the lesser mass, sorry, is not going to be able to pull the greater mass as much mm. as it would be the other way around. Yeah. So that centre of gravity is normally actually somewhere between the two, but when you've got a massive star, that centre of gravity is sometimes inside the star. Much, much closer to the star, yeah. Or not even much, much closer. Sometimes it's it's actually inside. inside. Um, So it means that instead of them both orbiting a central point, which is what happens when you've got two stars uh, that are gravitationally um, attached to each other, when you've got a star and a planet, sometimes the star is kind of orbiting a slightly off-centre point because of gravity, um, and it makes it look like it's wiggling. (laughs) Um, yeah so when we are so we can use the the doppler effect um to and we can detect that wiggle of a star and normally what that means is that there is a big planet pretty close to the star right so the analogy i'm sort of thinking of is like the um you know when you see the people doing the shot put and they're swinging around and so that they're swinging the shot put around because the shot put is so heavy it's sort of swinging the person around too. Yeah, exactly like that. But if you had a really small shot put, so if you tried to do it with a table tennis ball, table tennis ball's not it's really going to move. Inertia, but yeah. if you tried to do it with a medicine ball, you would have to hold the medicine ball a lot closer or, you know, you would be moved a lot more by you trying to spin it. Right, I see. And so when, when we look at the star, and if it's being shaken around by a planet, yes. we can detect that in the, the light coming from the star by Yeah, the Doppler shift. Yeah, we can detect the star doing a little jiggle. Wow, that's really cool. And so the Doppler shift is just that sort of neural sound. that. Yeah, absolutely. The ambulance. Yeah, yeah, I guess if it's moving in a circle, it'll be going towards and away from you for a while. Yeah, exactly. So with light, um, it works a little bit. It works very, very, in a very similar way to sound, but it just changes the 
shift a little bit. Yeah, okay. I think I, I, I follow along enough there. Yeah. Um, and so you said it, it indicates it must be extremely close to the planet then. So how, uh, sorry, to the star. How close is this uh, planet then to the star? It is ridiculously close. So in our solar system, the closest that Mercury gets to our sun is 47 million kilometres. Yep. This planet, 51 Pegasi B, is 8 million kilometres away from its star. <laughs> wow. So it's like, what's that, a tenth, uh, maybe... Well, about a, a fifth the yeah, distance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's likely to be a lot larger than Mercury as well for it to have that, um, for it to be able to exhibit that Doppler effect, yeah, which is how we found that. it. So if it's pulling it off course, is it like the size of Jupiter or something like that? So 51 Pegasi B, it's, it's big, but it's about half of the mass of Jupiter. So it's not as big as Jupiter, um, but it is bigger than Mercury. Massive. Yes, absolutely. Still massive. Um, how is that possible then? Aren't like... Jupiter-sized planets made of gas and like really fragile? Yeah, so we think that with planets like this, they probably started to form a lot further away from their star, but get pulled, got gradually pulled inwards uh, by that gravity. Um, so we've found quite a few examples of uh, what are called hot Jupiters, which are those <laughs> gas giants that uh, they, they form quite far away from their star, but then get pulled inwards, getting really hot. Wow. Yeah. And so 51 Pegasi B is the first example of a hot Jupiter. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Well, I guess that begs the question then, did this happen to the Jupiter in our solar system? Did it move close to the sun? We think it did. So there, we would call it the Grand Tack, uh, which it's called Tack because of boating terms. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, when you, when you tack on a boat, it's oh, it's either moving into the wind or moving away from the wind. And anyone who likes boats is going to write in and tell me I'm wrong, whichever one I say. So it's something to do with boats turning. Um, but we think that Saturn actually prevented Jupiter from uh, becoming very hot like this one. Oh, so, so it yeah. didn't let it pull all the way in. No, all the way in, right? no. So Saturn just being there and also being a large planet actually pulled Jupiter back to a, a stable orbit. Huh, that's interesting. Because, well, I guess if Jupiter kept spiralling into the sun, there's a good reason to think that the Earth wouldn't be the way it is today. Oh, definitely not. I mean, the Earth might have been, you know, we might have been caught by Jupiter. <laughs> yeah, we might be, might be a moon. A moon yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might not be our own planet at all. So I'm quite glad that the grand attack of Jupiter was... Uh, stopped by the anchor that is Saturn. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. And yeah, we, we can see an example of that in Pegasus in our sky. Yeah, That's absolutely. Delightful. That's so, really interesting. Yeah, we don't know what might happen to uh, Pegasi B, um, so 51 Pegasi B, sorry, because it might indicate to us what could have happened to Jupiter. So we'll continue to keep an eye on it. Who knows uh, in the future whether it'll disappear one day and oh, we'll yeah. stop seeing that Doppler effect because the sun will have swallowed it or <laughs> whether another it. massive planet will come along in that solar system and pull it out again. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting to keep an eye on. That is pretty exciting. Um, I guess let's leave that sort of space behind for a while. Um, is there any other interesting big news in the world of space? Yes. So there is an alien come to Earth. No, not really. Uh, no, <laughs> okay. so what we have is we sent a spacecraft uh, up into space. Uh, it was called OSIRIS-REx and it's come back. It's very exciting. Oh, so yeah. we sent it out and it's come back. Yeah. Cool. I was going to say, I've seen those pictures from that um, <laughs> silly Mexican tribunal thing or whatever. No, no, um, this is not the uh, the Mexican affair. No. Uh, this um, is OSIRIS-REx. I have heard returning. of OSIRIS-REx. Um, it's, it's a weird acronym, isn't it? Yes, so it stands for Origins, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, Security, Regolith Explorer, or Regolith, 
space words people people like to pick the difficult ones to pronounce i think i think they do it deliberately it's like the the surface material of something is it yeah so regolith is just stuff it's (laughs) genuinely the easiest way to describe it we have it on earth it's not a space specific thing it's just any loose rock mineral or glass fragments um that are just around so i guess it's sort of like um you might even call it like scree on Earth, like oh, on a yes. rock face. It's just the dusty sort of stuff. Material. Yeah, right. um, it can be mixed in with soil as well, but it's it's just loosely packed um, bits. Material. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the fact we're talking about this suggests has Osiris Rex been had something to do with with that? Like, what, what's its purpose? Yes. So what we did with Osiris Rex is NASA sent it to visit an asteroid called Bennu. Um, which is they Sorry, went Bennu? Did you say yes? Bennu, B E N U. Right. All of these are named after Egyptian mythology, so we've moved on from Greek. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, I recognise Osiris. I haven't heard of Bennu. So Bennu is the son of well, so Osiris is the son of the sun god Ra, okay. and Bennu is a sort of Egyptian god bird linked to the sun um basically people think that it might be the basis for the phoenix myth but there's also like a whole thing where bennu is the soul of ra so oh, osiris is kind uh, of visiting d- d- yeah, ancient mythologies are <laughs> yeah. fun but you shouldn't yes. take them too seriously no absolutely um, um so osiris rex went to the literally the asteroid called bennu yes and um what did it do there then so it was in orbit studying the surface uh, using uh, different technologies. Um, so, you know, taking photographs. Um, I can't remember if it was X-rays or some different kind of ray that it was using to investigate it. Um, but then, after a couple of years, it took a sample from the surface of this asteroid. So it took a sample of that regolith. A um, sample. Yes. Just as easy as that, is it? No. <laughs> well, it was. it was... Very difficult, so it was very, very exciting. Um, so in taking the sample, uh, it grabbed 250 grams. But when it did that, it blew up, I think, six tonnes of dust off the surface. <laughs> wow. So that sort of tells you a little bit about the the impact that this can have. Um, right. So it was orbiting and then it just kind of dropped down and snatched a bit off the surface and um, left. And in doing so, it just dislodged another six tons of material yes yeah <laughs> that's uh that's uh, that's pretty nuts um and why wh- wh- why do that well so we we want to know what what's going on what's going on in the surface like what there's so much detail that we can get from having a physical sample um because this asteroid there's only so much that we can ever do with with pictures even if they're pictures very fancy pictures using like um x-rays or gamma rays or anything so when we have a physical sample we can do chemical tests on it and so we know from uh some of this imagery that we've gotten that this asteroid is carbonaceous now what that means is that uh there's a lot of the molecules on its surface that are essential to life so they could be ah. organic molecules right, not yeah. organic molecules in the sense of like you buy it in the organic section of the supermarket <laughs> not like that no, but, but organic as in like, organic chemistry yeah yeah like things with carbon methane and um, amino acids and things like that. yes absolutely and so because we think that this asteroid is potentially older than planet earth uh, it could be a bit of a time capsule into our solar system and also i mean 
it could even, if we find life on this asteroid or evidence of that there might have been life near it, that's very exciting. That would be exciting. Huh? What a day, hey? I know. So it's a time capsule to our early solar system. So I guess, tell me a little bit more about Bennu then. So it's basically just a big pile of rubble um, that's being held together by gravity. Uh, and we think that it might have formed from debris that was blasted off a protoplanet. So... A protoplanet is... That was going to be my question. <laughs> yeah, you just throw out the, oh, exoplanet, protoplanet, planet, what do they all mean anyway? Don't even get into that because scientists are still arguing over what a planet actually is. But a protoplanet is a smallish object uh, from billions of years ago. And we think that some of those are what merged together to form our current planets. Right. Okay, that's that's what I thought. The, yeah, the name protoplanet suggests yeah. that. Okay. It's pre-planet. Pre-planet, yep. yeah. Um, okay, so, so planetary formation is basically like from little things, big things grow. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and you say Bennu seems to be made up of material that was blown off a protoplanet, did you say? Yes, we think so. We think that, like, so you've got those protoplanets, obviously, in early solar system, those protoplanets are doing a lot of crashing into each other. Mm-hmm. Some of them are crashing into each other and merging and becoming planets. Some of them are crashing in- into each other and just uh, breaking up into smaller pieces. Right. And even when the ones that crash together to make new planets, I mean, I, I'm saying crashing for a reason. It's not a gentle process. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, a lot of um, that debris, those like loose bits of material uh, right. get thrown off into the solar system, into space. And then from little things, big things grow. So those small pieces clump together and sand forms together into rocks. Rocks form together into boulders. Boulders form together into asteroids. Yeah, right. Okay, I see what you mean. So yeah, it is this very much a growing process. Uh, yeah, so it is. Um, we are a little worried uh, about some asteroids, uh, people are always a bit worried about asteroids crashing into Earth. Having said that, there are things that crash into Earth all the time. We spoke about them earlier. Meteor showers. Uh, so if they're small enough, those asteroids, uh, well, they become meteors when they hit our atmosphere and they burn up most of them. So does Bennu have a chance of hitting Earth? Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. It's not for a long time and there's not like 100%. It's not definitely going to crash into us. Um, so in between the years of 2178 or 2178 and 2185, okay. there's about a one in 1800 chance. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, no, you know what this is going to be? This is going to be a, we'll let the future generation solve the problem and no. it'll just keep getting pushed down the line until Oh, no, suddenly, until, until, until 2177 <laughs> and then they go, oh, no, Bennu is coming. <laughs> so one in 1800 chance between those years. Yeah. Uh, that, that's still pretty slim. And that's just from like modelling its orbit now and seeing where it will be in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And with space, who knows, unexpected things happen all the time. Um, And yeah, so we have no way of knowing for definite, which is why there's that one in 1800. Gotcha. So OSIRIS-REx went to Bennu, took a sample, brought it back to Earth. Yeah. Uh, And what happens to this sample now? So it's being opened up in a nitrogen environment. So nitrogen is very um, unreactive. Yes, it's, uh, nice. it's the stuff they put in crisp bags. It's not air. It's oh, actually it's, nitrogen. Yeah, that's right. I've heard that. Yeah. yeah, keep them preserved. Um, okay. So to protect it from like different contamination. And, yeah, and if you fill it filled with like oxygen, you get the meteoric equivalent of <laughs> going off. Yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, even just rust. So rust yeah. is oxidation. That's what happens when iron is exposed to oxygen. Right. Uh, so we've opened it in a nitrogen-rich environment um, so it doesn't get contaminated by biological or chemical substances. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
lots of different scientists across the world are going to spend years and years studying it and sharing it with different agencies so that we can learn as much as we can from it. Wow, there we go. Um, there we go. All right, so we'll learn a fair bit about Bennu. Is uh, is Bennu a typical asteroid then? Sort of. It's <laughs> typical for its type, and its type is the most common. So there are three main types of asteroid. <laughs> All right. Um, so you've got C-type, carbonaceous, which is what Bennu is, and right. about 75% of all asteroids that we know of uh, are carbonaceous. Then there's the S-type, which are stony or silicate. So they're very, very rocky. And there's also M-type, which are metallic. So, right. yeah, there's, there's those three different kinds of asteroid. Within those, Bennu is part of the most common one. Gotcha. Bennu's carbonaceous, right. Yes. C for carbonaceous, S for stony, and M for metal. Yeah. Okay, there we go. I've just learned that. Um, yeah, I don't really know much about the different classes of asteroids or that they even had classes. <laughs> yeah, you'd think that it's just all space rocks, but no, what kind of rock is in there is important. So yeah, you've got the C for carbonaceous, so with those uh, organic chemistry molecules. Uh, you've got S, which is stony, silicate, rocky, and M for metal. Mm-hmm. But speaking of metallic and metal, um, okay. as... Yeah, I know, it's very exciting. The OSIRIS-REx mission is ending because it's come back to Earth, mm-hmm. but Psyche is about to start. Psyche? Yes. <laughs> this has taken a turn. Yes, so not Psyche as in we're not suddenly doing a psychology podcast, don't worry. <laughs> okay. uh, so it's another NASA mission, also named after Greek gods because they keep doing this. Um, <laughs> so it's launching on the 5th uh, to visit an asteroid, which is also called Psyche. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, the 5th of October? Yes, that's very soon. It is very soon. That's quite poetic. As one mission ends, another one begins. It is. It is. It's beautiful. It's almost like they timed it like that. I genuinely <laughs> don't know if they did. I really hope that they did. But <laughs> I think the orbits would have more to say about it than our desires. That's true. Um, um, okay, so it's a, a spacecraft called Psyche going to an asteroid called Psyche. Yes. Yep. And uh, what's there? Why, why are we going to Psyche? Well, so this all links together because Psyche is an M-type asteroid. Right. So it's very, very different to Bennu. Mm-hmm. It's also a lot bigger. So Bennu is about 500 metres across. Mm-hmm. Psyche is 220 kilometres. Whoa. Yes. That must be one of the largest asteroids we know then. I expect so, yeah. I mean, that we know so far. Yeah. Obviously, everything <laughs> everything with space has that little caveat of, uh, so, so far, far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that we know. <laughs> so 220 kilometres across, and M-type, so it's metallic. Yes. So it's got lots of iron, lots of nickel, lots of metals. There, okay, um, so I'm going to guess this has a very different story than Bennu, if Bennu was blasted off the surface of a protoplanet. Yes, so we still think that it may have come from a protoplanet, mm-hmm. but we think it might have been the very core. So Psyche may have come from deep within one of those protoplanets. So right. like on planet Earth, our core is an iron core. Yep. So if we have these asteroids that are made of a lot of iron, there's a good chance that maybe that came from what would eventually become the core of a planet rather than something that would eventually become the surface. Right. So we're imagining like a protoplanet that would have maybe had a metal core and then has undergone some sort of really big collision and that's essentially just blown the outer layers off and what's left over is this metallic object we now call Psyche? Well, not just that, but so these collisions, they can get big enough that they actually melt the protoplanets (laughs) and so the metal then sinks. Um, Oh, and that's why they have the metal core in the first place. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is what happens, or it's our best explanation at the moment for why Earth and the other rocky planets have those metallic cores that they do. Right. And so how much metal does Psyche have then? So we think that it's about 50% metal. 
So mostly iron and nickel, which would mean if you imagine a hundred kilometer sphere of iron, which we probably can't, but that's okay. But it's more than we've ever mined on planet Earth. Huh. Yeah. Well, yeah, when you put it that way, a hundred kilometers is very large. Yes. Yes. It's very, very large. Well, the atmosphere is only a hundred kilometers thick. Yep. which you say only kilometres, but then actually if you think about an iron sphere from that stretches from the surface of planet Earth to space. the atmosphere to space, that's how big the sphere would be. Right. Um, and yeah, then suddenly it becomes a lot easier to visualise how it's more iron than we've ever taken out of the Earth before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, because, yeah, it, you kind of lose perspective in all of that when you say, you know, it's 200 kilometres across and it's about half iron and nickel. Yeah. Um, yeah, so imagine you're looking, you're standing at the bottom, looking up into the sky, but you can't see the sky because there's a big iron mass in the way. Right, so there's a lot of stuff there. Yes. And so when's Psyche going to get to Psyche? 2029! Yeah, stuff is very far away, and because we have not unlocked speed of light travel yet, we're not very fast at getting there. And in fact, space is so big, even once we do have speed of light travel, if we ever... It's still going to take a very long time. Um, But yeah, so it's going to do something pretty cool um so psyche is going to get a gravity boost from mars so basically it's going to fly past uh mars in such a way that the gravity of the planet will actually speed it up ah uh, yes and I sort of slingshot it this. yeah, the, yeah the slingshot yeah that's really cool okay so it's going to mars on its way to psyche yes so it's not it's not going into space to research mars that's not no. its purpose if it catches some information on the way past i'm sure we'll be happy with it but that's not the purpose of yeah, its mission yeah, exactly it's just there to get a boost of speed yeah yeah um and how's it going to study psyche when it gets there then so it's got a few things um first up a very fancy camera very important yeah you wouldn't go there without a camera no we need some good normal normal pictures of it <laughs> um and then it's also got uh, an even fancier camera called a gamma ray spectroscope which it's kind of like a camera but it takes pictures using gamma rays instead of uh visible light um right yeah it's as simple as that yeah just like that no more information uh, why, no why why gamma rays like, does the asteroid emit gamma rays um so when you're in space, everything in space is being bombarded by cosmic rays. Um, So those hit the surface of the asteroid so hard that it then gives off gamma rays, which that spectroscope can detect. Um, So the energy of those gamma rays, uh, it depends on what the asteroid's made of so that we we can figure out what it's made of by looking at those gamma rays. That's so clever. It's so cool. That, um, and that we're using the cosmic rays as the, the initial source of that energy. Yeah, so we don't need to send a gamma ray emitter into space. No. Um, so it's not like the asteroid's not like radioactive. It's not, no. you know, uranium glowing. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, the actual source of the energy is the cosmic rays and we're yes. just exploiting that yeah. with, with the gamma yeah. ray spectroscope. Absolutely. Huh. So yeah, it is kind of just a fancy camera yeah. uh but yeah, yeah i guess so yeah because <laughs> a normal camera works by detecting different energies of visible light this works by detecting different energies of gamma rays makes sense um cool so fancy cameras on board anything else yes so there's a magnetometer or magnetometer or magnetometer which i think sounds like some sort of 50s uh, childhood toy <laughs> i've always called it a magnetometer but oh that that's another option i hadn't even considered um but that just measures the magnetic field yeah, if it has one pretty self-explanatory yeah. isn't it? um and then lastly it has a radar but the radar is more to it, it tracks the motion of the spacecraft around the asteroid but as it's in orbit. The gravity pulls the spacecraft in different directions depending uh, on 
like how the mass is distributed. Right. Because if you've got a planet, it's a nice sphere. And so, well, mostly, uh, it's a nice sphere. So um, the mass is fairly evenly distributed throughout a planet. Whereas when you've got sort of potato-shaped asteroids, that mass can be different. It can also be way more dense at one end, way lighter at another. Um, So, you know, it can can change how the spacecraft will move around the asteroid. I see what you mean, yeah. If you've got like a real real big mountain over there that's slightly heavier, it might slightly pull the spacecraft in that direction. Yeah. And the radar can be tracked to... To detect that. Yeah, absolutely. And you just work backwards to, to figure out the, the distribution. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of, yeah, it's like drawing a picture of the outside of it by your wiggle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Back to the wiggle again. Yeah. <laughs> so much in space is just, look at that wiggle. Ooh, that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interpreting wiggles as uh, groundbreaking uh, new discoveries. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's the perfect place to end. <laughs> it's been a time and a half. Thank you so much for being here on, uh, on Please Look Up today, Beth. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Particles. Please look up. We'll see you next month where we talk about the night sky and the space news for November. If you want to hear more interesting space news, check out the website particle.scitech.org.au for more information.